Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Sam Grittner, who is a writer and comedian, and we're going to cover so much today. I'm excited about this episode. He's going to talk about the tips he would give somebody for their first time in a psychiatric ward. He talks about overcoming, or I wouldn't even say overcoming, but dealing and managing with his drug addiction. He's had uh, numerous suicide attempts. We're going to talk about what his daily routine is to maintain his sobriety and how he's overcome being heavily indebted due to his addiction, um, the, the, the burden, struggling with the, the feeling of being a burden of comparing himself to his siblings. I don't know if anybody out there has ever been compared to or compares himself to their siblings, if you have some of that going on. He talks about you know meditation and how depression feels different to him than suicidal ideations. What are the differences between those two? And he talks also about how the lack of spirituality in his life is one of the contributing factors to his suicidal uh, ideations and attempts. We, we get through so much today. Uh, I'm excited. And also, of course, we talk about some of the books that he would read if he were in a psychiatric ward. We talk about that and so much more. Let's jump into the episode. And also, oh, thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for rating this five stars. I appreciate you. And thank you for the messages. I've been getting a lot of personal messages from you all, so I appreciate it. All right, let's jump into the episode. What's up, Sam? How are we feeling, brother? Uh, feeling a lot of feelings right now. Uh, I, I have to do a COVID test. Uh, it might just be a cold, might be allergies. Um, I turn 40 tomorrow, so it might be butterflies. Um, but I'm feeling good. I got the day off. I have today, tomorrow, and, and Saturday off. I usually work on, uh, the weekend, so, uh, yeah, life is good. Now, when you say you turn forty tomorrow, that that's a that's a big milestone, I would imagine. You know, I'm forty six, and uh, are you are you having any preconceived notions about what forty means? Yeah, uh, I want like my my brain is trying to be like all, you know strouting around big big man on campus and be like no no i'm fine and like no like the past two weeks i've just been asking myself what does it mean to be 40 for myself and like i have a lot of preconceptions and misconceptions and um you know i think ultimately like something that i've learned over the years is that or i'm very at peace with now is like i'm exactly where i'm supposed to be right now and um, I'm, I'm not excited about it, but I'm not afraid about it. Like, it's like the biggest thing for me is that like, I'm able to take off of work. I'm able to hang out with my girlfriend. She's going to be taking me out to dinner. Um, and I'm alive and healthy for another day, another year. I've stuck around this long. This is what way longer than I ever imagined I'd be <laughs> on this earth. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm ex just kind of excited to see what it brings. And, and I'm trying to just like 
uh, mute the conversation in my head and just let whatever happens next happens next. And like, all I, all I can control is, you know, how I react to whatever's in front of me. And, um, I, it also doesn't hurt that like, and you're seeing me for the first time, like, and the lighting is not good in here, but like, you don't look 46. I don't look 40. Like I, like I get carded for cigarettes sometimes still. And, like like that's incredible <laughs> like yeah it, it is what it is yeah we, we we live in a time where you know people are living longer and and looking better and you know we we are you know through technology and just and more awareness and also genetics you know there's my mom is 70 and looks like she's maybe 50 so uh chalk it up to moms passing down that DNA to your boy. Yeah, uh, it's like I'm, you know, it's usually on a birthday you get gifts, but I'm sending like five gifts to my mom tomorrow. So I'm right on the same page with you. <laughs> as you should, man, as you should. Well, Sam Grittner, um, uh, Grittner, am I pronouncing your last name correctly? I didn't even ask you. Yeah, um, no, that's that's correct. I am. Um, I'm excited to have you on a podcast. I I don't I don't know how I stumbled on you. Oh, you know. So I write articles sometimes, or I write articles. I post um, sometimes in on this website called Medium, which you know has really great articles that you know anybody can really post in. And Barack Obama posts on Medium, um, and and I just typed in suicide to see what anybody has been writing about suicide and the first thing that one of the first articles to pop up was yours that you wrote in 2015 uh titled a funny thing happened when i was typing my suicide note so i clicked it i was like what's the funny thing Uh, because you know for my listeners out there you're also uh, a comedian and a writer and so I was like, what's this funny thing? And then I, as I'm reading it, I was like, whoa. And I'm just like taking notes and I'm completely blown away. Uh, Sam, can you take us back to 2015? Uh, you know, this is 2022, but w- w- talk talk us through what was going on at the time you're writing this note and, and what happened after. Yeah, I'm happy to do so. Um I have had anxiety and severe depression since I was 11 years old, diagnosed. I've been on medication for it for most of my adult life. I'm also uh, a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. And um, I am currently sober and active in my recovery, which is beautiful. Um, At the time that I wrote that, I think I was very uh, high on weed. Uh, cause that's my drug of choice. Um, but basically for most of my twenties and early thirties, like I was that guy who would drink too much and it's such a fucking weird car to play. Um, am I allowed to curse on here? Yeah, it does limit who can hear, but yes, you can. Well, I can, I'm, I'm, a, I have a big vocabulary, so uh, <laughs> I can work around that too. Um, I was just in a really bad 
headspace where I was the person, or maybe, I don't know if this is uh, like a general uh, characteristic that you'll find in like a group of people, but I, I would eventually drink enough where I would threaten or tell my friends, my good friends, like, uh, I'm just going to kill myself. That was my, a constant refrain because um and a lot of this is looking back like in retrospect like i was in a ton of pain but a lot of it was self-caused with, with drugs and not really treating depression um i also found out that uh like three years ago um i have something else on top of like the depression anxiety where when i drink or use um it basically throws gasoline on any thoughts of suicidal ideation and so um, basically, I had been telling myself forever that if things got bad enough, I would kill myself. And so I sat down one night and Wait, I I'm sorry, writing. Sam, what is that thing? You said you have a thing that it, it throws gasoline on it. What's the thing? Oh, it's just a diagnosis. There's a medical diagnosis that like uh, substance, like I have a predisposition for suicidal ideation. Uh, but more like, I guess the, 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 the bigger picture is if I use drugs or alcohol that increases those thoughts, it turns the volume up to 11. And, um, so I sat down at my desk and, um, started handwriting out a note because uh i especially as a comedian <laughs> a middle child uh i'm very important i don't I, I know you know this that's why i'm on the podcast i'm obviously extremely uh important and so i was like well i can't just leave this world without like putting my thoughts on paper about why this world is so messed up and and just giving an explanation about why I did what I did. And so I started writing it out and I looked at it and I was like, this is chicken scrawl. Like, cause my handwriting is terrible. And I'm like, nobody can read this. And so I was like, all right, like go to boot up the laptop. And then I am like on like word or whatever, trying to, I'm like, I'm going to, okay, I'll just write it on my computer. And the cursor is just blinking over and over again because in my head i'm like doing the most irrational and logical things at the same time i'm trying to figure out what is the right font for a suicide note and like i spent like 20 minutes and it's it's like i mentioned in the uh, the essay or the article i'm like like times new roman like come on like that that's that's too basic and wingdings is crazy so it's just going to be like football football cabin like that's those are those aren't really last thoughts <laughs> those are just things um and then i did uh i ended up i think on comic sans uh because i like irony and there's the joke there is that the world would soon be sans a comic for all my uh latin heads out there without uh without a comic um and i sat down and one thing i've been very good at over the years is not holding back and talking when i talk about mental health when i talk about my suicide attempt when i talk about drug use um i have a gift in the sense that 
I don't have much of a filter. I've gotten better about like just not <laughs> making it my personality and making it, especially with sobriety, like not like going up to strangers at a party and be like, I'm sober. Um, and like attacking people <laughs> kind of. Um, but I, I started writing out the note and by the end of it, like I went to print it out and my printer died and I was getting mad at my printer. I was like, how could you? I was depending on you. And then I was like, the irony that I'm mad that my printer killed itself or stopped working. Like, and it was just, it was um, baffling to me. And the thing about, for me, like with suicidal ideation or suicidal thoughts is like, over the last year, I've been so lucky. I've had maybe three really bad days. But back then in 2015, this was an everyday occurrence. It was sometimes multiple times a day. And, but my moods would just go up and down so much, just this roller coaster um, that would go from space to deep oceans type levels. And um, by the end of writing it, I was like, you know what? Like, ah, I'm, I'm just gonna watch some, some Nathan for you and like have some pie. Like it just, it, it left and like that all happened. And so I just put that into the essay and um, looking back, like it's, um, it makes her a great standup set. It's, it's, it's just the contradictions of it is, is, is something that's really hard to wrap my head around sometimes where it's. I can see uh, selfishness and arrogance and um, the dramatizing that I'm I'm prone to do kind of instinctually, unless I call myself out on it, catch it. Um, and again, like I don't really care. I've gotten a lot better about this, but I never was worried about like, <laughs> like, oh, if I share this, like, will I be able to get a job? Like, I just put it out there and um, it was really well received. Um, I think it was one of my like top read uh, posts on Medium and that, and I think uh, another essay or article that you're going to reference, like the most beautiful thing that's come out of it is that I've had people, because you're not the only one, like <laughs> I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast and like hearing someone like, I'm just going to type in suicide and see what's, what's, <laughs> what's happening. Like, uh, I don't think that's, that's most people. Uh, I could be wrong. I think it's more than, than people think or let on. Um, but it really resonated. And I have had people, uh, cause I've written subsequent articles about my mental health and suicide attempts. People reach out to me and tell me that they Googled like, I'm going to how to kill myself or suicide note. And then they ended up reading my article. And I have like a couple of people that have told me they were going to kill themselves and they stopped because they read that and they, they were able to pause the demons for that night. And then the next day they were able to reassess and they were good. And I've stayed in touch with a couple of them. And like, that's like, you talk about like, like 40, like, or like, there's nothing more I want out of my life than, than, than having done that. And that's not to brag like at all. I, I just, it's a series of random circumstances and the internet being just, you know, it can be this 
such, <laughs> I don't know if you know, it can be a bad place sometimes. It can be kind of toxic. And the upside is it can be amazing. It can, it can be a lighthouse for people that are really going through it. And I've been through it. I have gone through it, the grind, the self-doubt so many times. And um, I've read pe- works from other people, especially for me, just about recovery that have given me hope where, cause I've been in and out of, of recovery for seven years. And I had a year and I had two years. And then right before the pandemic, I was coming up on another year back. So almost like six years, I'm currently a year and some change uh, completely sober. But like people that I've read that I respect and sometimes just absolute strangers, you know, it just, you, you connect with somebody on a visceral level with their writing style. And um, it has the, the possibility of, of changing someone's life or, or just getting them to look at what they're going through through a different prism and that to me is key just on a day-to-day basis for me for my own uh just understanding of life and and how i approach it yeah you know the day-to-day really when we're talking about addiction and recovery it's about one day at a time is there something that you do every day to kind of ground yourself or maintain your sobriety? Like, do you have a routine? Are you in AA? Do you pray? Like, what, what's your, like, how do you start your mornings and, and end your days? I start it by blowing up 150 watermelons. I'm really into demolition. And then I, no, I, uh, that's, a, that's an attempt at a joke. Um, I do, I, I'm spiritual. Uh, I don't want to get too into it, but I will say that I pray to something greater than me. Uh, when people hear recovery and hear the word God, that was a big turnoff for me for a long time. And I'm at a place in my life where I just pray to something greater, greater than me. That's rainbows. That's the forest in Star Wars. That's that's a lake. That's a sunset. Um, and yeah, I do have a morning routine. I get down on my knees. I pray. Um, I eat a good, healthy breakfast. I, um, end up, I call my sponsor. I am in a program of recovery, uh, that may or may not have, uh, two letters in it. Um, I don't speak for that organization. I want to make that very clear. Um, and, um, I've, I've just found it, uh, incredibly helpful. I do go to meetings, at least three to four times a week, I have a sponsor and, um, that's kind of all I, uh, without, yeah, I, I don't want to, I used to talk a big game about, uh, the program of recoveries that I've been in and then I would relapse and I don't want to turn anyone off from that. So I want to keep it just a little vague if, if that makes sense. Yeah. I also read in the article, you, you talked about, um, you know, going to therapy twice a week. Are you still doing that? Uh, my girlfriend is amazing. Uh, she has been uh, working on herself and uh, has been going to therapy. And I think about a month and a half ago uh, is when I started it again. So I have it once a week on Wednesdays. Uh, I have a job where I'm able to block off an hour and just do that via Zoom. Um, I'm definitely a big believer in just because things are going well doesn't mean they can't be going better. Um, I've definitely for most of my life would wait until 
um, the excrement hit the fan and then be like, oh, I need to, now I need to take steps. And I'm in a place now where it's like, okay, like I'm working a program actively. I'm watching what I eat as much as I can. I'm trying to get physical exercise, but is there more? Can I adjust my medications? That was a big thing for me two years ago where we changed up uh, the prescription that I was on for anxiety and depression. And I had this incredible psychiatrist or psychologist that said, um, like I, it, I switched to a different product and it was working wonders. And she said, well, we can double the dosage. And I was like, why would you do that? It's already working. She's like, well, it, it could actually work better for you. And that ended up being the case. And so that's the same thing now with therapy where it's just like, what else can I add to my toolkit? And that's something that I, I'm lucky enough to have. Like I am like, I have health insurance through the, the day job that I have. Um, but I went to sliding scale, scale therapist for a long time. And anyone out there who doesn't have a lot of money, that's, that's something that like, it takes a little work, but you, you can find a therapist. And I find it extremely helpful, even though I, I do all this other work. It's just like, well, what, what else? I'm always open. And so I just, I told her I'd try it and it's been helping. It's been helping with her, our relationship. And then just how I interact with the world on a day-to-day basis. You know, when I hear, cause earlier you mentioned when you, you started drugs and alcohol, when you were about 11, I believe, is this something that your parents, uh, indulged in also? No. Um, so I started smoking pot around, I think, 14, maybe 13. Um, I was uh, like, basically, I was I think I was a, a sophomore. So maybe it was even like 15, 16. But um, my parents had like they never they told me like like that they had done uh, smoke pot in the past. And my mom got drunk when I was like 12 or 13 one night and was like, oh, I did magic mushrooms. But like. My parents would drink not to excess. Uh, there was alcoholism on both sides of my family that I was aware of. Um, but like my older brother like was smoking pot before I was, and he doesn't have uh, he's not addicted to this stuff in the way that I get. And so it and it also it snowballed really fast. Like I was smoking a oney with weed uh, when I'm like fifteen, and then within, two years I was at the senior bowling party and I had cocaine ecstasy blunts like I was I was rolling pretty heavy and thought and thought I was just like the king and just bawling out and it's like in retrospect I was going to the bathroom by myself no one else wanted to uh indulge and it was a really like isolating place in retrospect yeah, addiction can definitely be isolating and and then especially with the emotions that come with it, the shame and the guilt. And then you know you're you're still a teenager, so your hormones are are in such a flux that everything is 10 times more intense um at that age because I mean you just have natural drugs coursing through your body. The you know, how did your parents respond to the, were they trying to get you in therapy? Was it their suggestion? Because you said you've been on medication from a young age also. Uh, how was their support around you getting the help that you you needed at that age? 
my parents have always been, I'm so blessed. They've been so incredibly supportive. Um, I had, I think around age 11, had some suicidal thoughts and I mentioned it to my parents. And within like a week, I was seeing a therapist weekly. I was taking Prozac. So they've been super supportive. Um, but they also, at the same time, they let me live my life and make my own decisions and mistakes. And um, I, you know, especially as when you're a teenager, you're, you think you're going to live forever. You think nothing can stop you. Um, and I uh, was just very adamant that I was going to do what I was going to do. My parents made it clear that if I uh, continued to smoke pot in their house, I had to move out. And so I moved out, I think, when I was 17, 18, got my own place and made it work for, for just, it was always just, it was a house of cards that a, a, a light breeze could blow over or a sneeze for myself. But uh, it was very janky, this duct taped house of cards that I had. But I, I, my parents have been supportive this entire time. And especially when I, uh, was in a psych ward they they were able to put up money to pay for cobra insurance to make sure that i got like the best care possible and um so i can't say enough about their support for me before i ask you about the psych ward because i know i have so many listeners who have maybe thought about admitting themselves and are perhaps hesitant due to the negative publicity that it's it receives in a lot of mainstream media. At age 11, you report having suicidal thoughts. Through therapy, what have you uncovered in terms of what is it that you really wanted to end or what were you thinking or feeling? Did you feel like a burden to your parents? Did you feel abandoned? Was there uh, abuse? What was happening? Um, I definitely felt like a burden. I definitely felt like uh, I was different than everyone else around me, that I didn't, I was very emotional and empathetical or uh, had a lot of empathy. Um, but ultimately, the biggest thing when I look back is that I didn't know who I was. And I was afraid of, I, I thought I was a bad person. That's what it constantly came back to was there was a voice in my head saying, you're a bad person. You're not worthy of X, Y, and Z. And ultimately, and very quickly, it became, you're not worthy of life or a good life. So I would turn to drugs and alcohol to drown that out as much as possible. But then at a certain point, it ends up fueling that fire. Um, so that's that's kind of the short answer to that is that I when I look back at all of this, it was, I didn't know who I was. I was, I'm six foot three. I used to like, I've gained weight over the past couple years, but I was like a buck 35 for most of my adult life. Like just gaunt, skinny. I, I was proud of that. Um, and like, I had braces for seven years. I had acne, I had back knee, I had bad knees. I wasn't into sports. I um, and that was, that's another thing, like for young people out there, like I looked at it, I was like, oh, that's what, that's for jocks. And like now, I, like on the, on the eve of, of, of 40, <laughs> um, 
I go, I, I do my best. Like I'm trying to, I might be getting a personal trainer, like just like the physical exercise, like exercise and being in physicality, like helps your mind so much. Just like you're watching your diet, like all these things are interconnected. But at the time it was just ego where I was like, oh, I'm better than those jocks because I'm, I started out as like a theater nerd and I was doing really well in school. And then I started doing improv in high school and I was like, oh, and then smoking pot. And I was just like, oh, this is just what comedians do. Like they, they need to do drugs. And I think our society has shifted a lot in that mindset where it's like um, the, the idea of the tortured artist is it equals a great artist and it's it, it's if there's anything i could go back and tell myself in a time machine it would be buy apple stock and then also um that's not true like that's it's it's complete it's the reverse like i do my best creating when i'm of sound mind and just present and and yeah <laughs> Yeah, the research shows that when we are depressed, especially if we are in, in a major depression, we actually are not able to create. Uh, but if we're in a melancholy state or manic or in a neutral state, we can create from those places. But great depression does not yield great art at all. You just uh, everything just feels too heavy and and too much at that state. So. I appreciate you uh, uh, highlighting that. When you when you talk yeah, really, about, go ahead. Go, I was just gonna say it's really hard to write a masterpiece when you can't even get out of bed. <laughs> yeah, like, absolutely, absolutely. And and so going back to feeling like a burden, can you peel back the layers more on that? And and I'm asking because as a as a kid when I was nine, I felt like a, a financial burden. Like my mom's life would be better if she hadn't had me, like she would have more money and she can travel and see the world and do all those things. If she wasn't spending her time uh, raising me and spending her resources and finances on taking care of me. What, and when you look at feeling like a burden, what were the thoughts? What were the feelings? What was going on at that time? It was definitely a, a different um, feeling for me. It was more, uh, I'm the middle of three boys. My parents did the best they could. My brother uh, is incredibly smart. He was an overachiever. And I was constantly comparing myself to him. And I think, you know, like, I, I don't want to ever blame my parents, but um, for, for anything, they did the best they could. But I think at, at times, there was an expectation where it's like, your older brother is doing all this. Why are you not able to do it? Like, and for me, then I interpret that as, well, am I lazy? Am I stupid? Cause I'm trying really hard. And then I found out at some point that my brother has like a photographic memory. And it's like, that's the cheat code of life, man. Like, I don't have that. Like, and I like, I don't know, like I've never been diagnosed with ADD, but like I would read the same, especially in math and science. Like I clicked with literature and like, I love reading and all that. So like that, that was easy, but like math and science, I would just read the same pages over and over again and then be like, I, I'm not retaining any of this. It's just like, like imagine like 
putting a sponge underwater, but none of the water is getting collected. Like it's just not doing anything. And so uh, there was a lot of compare and despair. And um, then the longer I was around, I would just have emotional outbursts. And I, it was a drag. It was a drag on my friends. It was a drag on my family. Like anyone I came in contact with, I would end up kind of, in my mind, dragging them down because I didn't feel like I had value or worth. And then I would say that. And um, it was just this like domino effect or, or cyclical effect where I would say these things and then they would become true. I would manifest them in a weird way. And so it was just tied up a lot in, for me, like academia, like I, I got like, I think a 1500 or something on my, my SATs. Like I was like smart, but I also, um, wasn't as, I'd never be as smart as my older brother. And I thought that was something that was wrong with me for the longest time. And it turns out like we're just built different. Like I love him. He can't tell a joke <laughs> to save his life. Like that's a gift. Like uh, writing like essays that like uh, connect with people. Like and again, this is not this is it's not like shots fired at him. It's just like he and I are different people, and that's it's all good. But like coming to that has taken so like decades of therapy and introspection and making mistakes and like just getting brutally honest with myself. Yeah, because, you know, and I love that you mentioned your parents asking you, why can't you be more like your brother? Why can't you be more like that? And when you're a kid and you don't have the answers to that, your default is then I am a bad person. I must, yes. I must not be uh, worthwhile because my, my brother, we come from the same parents. We have the same genes. So we're in the same household and, you know, we're, it seems like we're, we're all doing the same things. And then, as you said, you each of were gifted with a different talent. And really that's a question your parents should be asking, you know, cause I have so many listeners who do have parents who are, you know, I, and I, and I experienced that the same, like I have a younger sister and, you know, my mom would often compare, uh, myself to my younger sister um, more so where it was like, why can't my sister be more like me kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And we're just built differently. We have, you know, different skill sets. So when you, was there a religious upbringing? Because usually when I think of good and bad, I think of the church and, you know, and going to, uh, were you Catholic? What, what was your, what was the religion? No, it was, uh, my mom is a proud, like loves to say she's a, a proud ex-Catholic. My dad is, uh, I would say militantly uh, atheist. Um, and I don't know if I'm misremembering this memory, but I feel pretty clear that I think when I was like 12 or 13, like right before I got into drugs, I asked my dad, like we, we went to a Unitarian church uh, in St. Paul. Minnesota and 
Unitarianism, for those who aren't familiar, the best that I, or at least the way I experienced it, it was very much a buffet of all these other, like every other religion. And it was very just like, take and choose what you like from these other ones and, and make your own thing. It's kind of like a Build-A-Bear for <laughs> spirituality. Um, and I think like we went there for two years and then one day my older brother and I conspired and we were like, we're gonna, we're gonna trick our parents into, or tell them like, we don't wanna go. And we uh, sat my mom down and we're like, mom, we're not going to church anymore. What do you think about that? And she was like, that, cool, that's fine. And so we just didn't go after that. And then when I asked my, I remember asking my dad to get back to the memory I was talking about. I said, what happens when you die? And I don't, again, like this is blurry, but the way that I remember it is that he said, you die. And I was like, what happens after that? And I think he said they, again, like this sounds so harsh, but like they throw dirt on you. Like that's, that's it. And so that definitely ties into me where the, it's there, there was this lack of spirituality where, okay, so if there is no heaven, there is no afterlife, then all I've got is now. So why not party it up and, and make the most of it and have as much fun and live every night like it's Friday or Saturday night because none of this ultimately matters. I'm not being judged on anything. Um, and so I definitely, and like, that's the way that I interpreted that. And, you know, again, like I'm not here to cast blame or aspersions on my parents. They did the best they could. Um, but if, if I ever have kids, I will definitely approach that question differently where it's like, I don't know, but like, what do you think? Like that to me is a really interesting, like, or, or a better approach than just like, oh, uh, you decompose and worms eat you. Nothing matters. Do you want to listen to death metal? <laughs> like, that's kind of like the vibe that I got. Yeah. You know, and, and I know I'm asking a lot about your parents, but I am so fascinated with not only our story, but how our the stories that we have about ourselves connect to the stories that our parents had about themselves, and then so on and so forth, and 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 going uh, so far back. What in your your parents' history do you think resulted in the the kind of stoicism that your father had, and and how your mom also responded to you know your mental health. Um, my dad was just raised in, uh, an atheist household. And from my understanding, uh, it was very, like you said, like, that's the, the ding, ding, ding word of the day for that household is stoic, which is you didn't, you didn't really show your feelings. Uh, you didn't show emotion. And so I think that trickled down to him. And he did his best. He, he's done some amazing work over his lifetime in becoming a lot more emotional and vulnerable, but it's still really hard for him. And then on my mom's side, um, uh, there's just a lot of, uh, I, I, I don't want to speak out of turn. I don't really know why she, like the specifics on why she left the Catholic church aside from it was just, it was not for her. I think she's a little bit more spiritual than my dad. Um, but at the same time, um, ultimately, like there's, so that's that's one big facet of all this. But then you asked about um, their reaction to my mental health and, 
and like all this negative stuff with that, like that response was beautiful. And I don't, I, that comes from the fact that they are both, both extremely empathetic and caring people and just wanted me to be happy. And that's something my mom has told me my entire life is I just, I just want you to be happy and, 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 and feel like, and then for me, conversely, it's like, I didn't realize at the time. And I, I think a lot of addicts don't realize this until it's, I don't want to say too late, but, um, cause it's never too late, but, um, I thought I was only harming and hurting myself with my actions. And that is just not the case. I, the, the, the echoes and ripple effects of my using of not showing up as a good brother of showing up stoned at Christmas of not remembering birthdays or, um, having an emotional outburst at my older brother's wedding and kind of like not ruining it, but putting a big blotch on it. Like I, was convinced for a long time that like I'm only hurting myself and that's just something that like one of the things I love right now about my life is that my mom keeps saying like I don't have to worry about you and the fact that I put that burden on her for so long um breaks my heart in a lot of ways but it's also that's a living amends that I get to do every day is every day that I'm doing and taking care of myself and showing up for myself by um default I'm showing up for her in this uh, really beautiful way. I would imagine, you know, having a father who is stoic and you being born very empathetic, did you kind of feel like an outsider in the family? Like were your, were your brothers more stoic or were they as empathetic as you? <laughs> that's a, that's a really great question, Leon. Um, They, I mean, at the time, I think like if I'm thinking back to my mindset of, of my early teens or late teens rather, um, I do feel, at least in my mind, I thought I was more empathetic. Um, it's, that's a really gnarly question. It's a really tough one for me to answer just because I definitely don't want to speak on behalf of them, but like they... They're, they were very empathetic and caring. I think I just, I had no emotional self-control. That was the difference is that they, they were just as caring and still are like, like very incredibly empathetic people. Um, I just, you know, it goes back to like, what, what was I feeling at the time and like growing up and this lesser then and that's something that it's still even like with all the labels that I put on, like, why did I feel the way I feel or, or how, what were the emotions? Like, that's something that's still kind of intangible where it's like, I just was emotionally out of place and like, it was just overwhelming. And like you talked about before, which is like going with peaks and valleys of, of being extremely manic at times and being like, oh, I can help the world and this and that to the next day or even the, the same day, just being in the pits and being like, I'm, I'm worthless, I don't matter. Um, so I don't know, that question kind of got away from me, but like, I, I, I just don't want to speak on their behalf or you know, put words in their mouths or whatever. No, no, that that makes sense, and uh, and and I definitely 
want to go back to, you know, you're 6'3", you're 135 pounds. And, and I would imagine, because you talked about expectations. So you have the expectation from your mom of why can't you, you know, why aren't you more like your brother? But then there's also, the, I would imagine, societal expectations of you're 6'3", right? And you're, so everybody's yeah. expecting you to want to play basketball, football, and yes, what sir. kind of sport do you play? And you're like, I want to study Shakespeare. You know, like how did that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what were you were 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 you picked on? Was that uh, or was it acceptable for the circles that you were in? Like, what was that like for you to to look one way, and and have people perceive you as one thing, and but inside you have a, a, an entirely different world going on. Like honestly, I I lucked out. Like I went to St. Paul Central High School. I graduated in the year 2000. That was the best thing that ever happened to me. It's what got me into comedy. Um, and I think what was my greatest asset uh, was also like one of my biggest downfalls, which was I was a chameleon. And so I would just always change who I was depending on who I was with. And so I was friends with, like it was just a really diverse school straight, black, white, Hispanic, uh, gay, non-binary. Um, they had, it was so progressive. This is the year like 19, from 96 to 2000, they had a daycare for kids of the high school students. Like, and it was like 2000 plus students and it was a melting pot. And I, like, you know, like there was definitely some homophobic and gay slurs thrown my way, but that's it. I was never, I've never been in a fight. Um, and I, you know, it's, like I said, like, it's this thing where it's like, I was able to adapt. I, th I forgot, but like, I was like, not homecoming king, but my sophomore year, like, I was like, picked for the homecoming, whatever title of royalty it was. Um, like, I was like, I, I used to look back and be like, oh, high school was like, really tough. And it's like, people liked me. But I didn't like me because I was, I did again, it just keeps coming back to, I didn't know who I was. So I'll just pretend I'll fake it till I make it. But while I'm doing that, I'm just drowning in self-doubt. And um, yeah, I think it's just, you know, it'd be really easy for me to say, oh, I was beat up and this and that, like, but that's not the truth. And like, I'm a straight white guy in, you know, in the early aughts or whatever, like, that's a pretty easy existence <laughs> like and the expectations for me like when I told my family that I was going to do comedy they were just like that's awesome like like I had this big again this big speech prepared to tell my parents and I was like what do you think about that I'm not gonna go to college and they were like we love and support you and later on I was like oh I think I'd like because they helped my brother with college a little bit I like I saved them like a hundred grand with that sentence <laughs> like like but everybody had always been supportive of me. And so um, it's definitely like anyone who's getting into comedy now, like, I don't like, I'm so torn. Like, I'm glad people don't really ask me for advice. Cause like I getting into standup was the best thing that ever happened to me. And it was also uh, one of the worst things because I thought I was more important than other people. I thought I was the most important voice in the room the inflated sense of self um and then the idea that 
I mean, it's a, it's, it is being able to speak publicly, as you know, is a gift. And I'm at the point now where like, I hear like coworkers telling me like, they like get scared to present in front of the company. And I'm like, I, it just does not compute for me. And the ease and ability with which I can go on a stage uh, or just talk publicly about anything like um, it's, it's intoxicating. And especially like if you don't have your ego in check, it will, it will eventually catch up with you. And that's definitely uh, what's happened a number of times in my life, a number of times. Yeah, it's definitely a, a drug to get that that dopamine, that oxytocin, yeah. and the serotonin, endorphins, all of that from speaking on stage. I mean, of course, once the adrenaline dies down and the cortisol levels lower, the tell me more about this ego grandiosity because it, it's so fascinating that in because I I see this in myself and I hear it from other people who struggle with addiction and suicide ideation. There's this back and forth of uh, like shame and guilt, like I'm a bad person and this low self-worth. And then on the flip side, there's this ego and grandiosity of like, I'm better than everyone else. How do you, how do you keep that pendulum more in the middle versus it swinging from one end of the spectrum to the other? Or do you just let it swing? I have definitely been able to find a, a really good balance um, and that like is because of all the mistakes that I've made, but the fact that over time I've learned from them. And, um, I think it's like, it's just what you brought up is one of the most fascinating things in the world where on the one hand, I will, I used to go up on a stage and either do really well. Well, yeah, let's just say for the sake of this, like, uh, I would do really well, go home. And then, like you said, like the serotonin and the dopamine runs out and then I'm stuck with myself. And um, then it's like, well, let's put drugs in here to cover this up. And for me, like the biggest thing about just like mellowing it all out and finding a balance is coming to the, a couple of conclusions. The first one is um, I used to tell myself that every show was that like, this is it. This is the most important show of my life. Whatever, like the show that night was it. And this idea of like, if I just kill at the right place at the right time, I'll get discovered and I'll be an overnight success. And the truth of the matter is like, there is no overnight success. Like anybody who's great at standup has been doing it for a long, long time and has failed so much. And that's the whole trick of standup comedy is it looks like it's off the cuff, but it is not for the most part, like aside from a few really gifted people. and. So when I come to terms with the fact that, okay, this, this show actually, it, it doesn't really matter to me. Like in the big picture, it doesn't matter. And so if I like, and then it also, like I'm getting really hyped and excited about this because I have a lot of thoughts on it. And um, like the other thing that I really want to talk about is the idea of, the validation that I get from the audience used to inform my view on myself. And so if I killed that night, oh, look at the God King. Look at Zeus, who's decided to treat everybody by coming down from Mount Olympus. Oh, you want a Thunderbolt, little guy? There you go. There you go. And then 
if I if I did horrible, I'd go home. I'm the worst. Like, let's write a like a, a chicken scrawl note about how I want to die and listen to really sad music and drink whiskey and wonder why I'm depressed, <laughs> which is just a self fulfilling prophecy. And so I'm at this point now with with comedy where I don't care what you think about me. I know I'm funny. I've been doing this long enough where if I go on stage, I am going to do really well. If you get on board my train, congratulations, you're on the winning team. If it's not for you, I accept that and I respect that. You're wrong, but I'm not going to put up a big, uh, uh, I'm not, not going to make it to do out of it. Like it just is what it is. And it's this beautiful thing where it's like, it's a zero sum, it's it's no longer, there's no value attached to it. And so I like, and so that actually makes me a better performer because the more you're putting pressure on yourself, the more you get in your head versus if you go on stage and you're just like, I'm just gonna go out and let it fly. This is just one of many shows that I will do. For me personally, that's the most freeing stuff in the world. It's incredible. I, I, you're right. This because a lot of times uh, when we have this, you know, depressive brain, we make everything all or nothing. It, it, it's either like this is going to be the best show, or that was the worst show, or and we put too much uh, emphasis on on everything that we do, and um, and, yes. and it just it, it takes the fun out of it. It takes the joy, and and the, and the reason why we really got into it, and then no show is really ever satisfying enough it, it, it's it's we're always like digging for more when we go through life like that the going talking about the psych work can you talk to us about one how many times were you in there and then what suggestions would you give for someone who was going into the psych ward for the first time um, I, uh, got my punch card punched three times. Um, I went to, uh, a psych ward involuntarily the first time. Um, and I was using and, uh, I had relapsed and I was drinking again. And I was like, I I'm going to go out and I'm going to tell them everything they want to hear. And then I'll go back out and everything will be fine. And so I think I was released within two weeks. And a week later, I was back. And like the some of the nurses were like, weren't you just? I'm like, yep, uh, I was just here. Uh, you guys know how I like my breakfasts. Um, and, you know, this is obviously a very serious um, topic. And so uh, I'm definitely, I, I assume the audience knows that like when I make jokes about this stuff, um, it's it's a very dark subject or it's heavy. It's very heavy. And so like, I might try and make it a little more light, but in, I guess I'll try and strike the balance here and say like, that's a, I've never been asked that question before. And that's, that's a, an incredible question about what advice would I give to someone? Um, I just want to backtrack and say the third time I went, I went voluntarily. Um, the, the second and third time um, I admitted to a therapist, I was having suicidal thoughts and um I made that choice going in. Like I knew that if I said that to my therapist, that she has the obligation to put me in, at least for the evaluation. Um, and it's it's a very, like, 
I forget which hospital I went to in New York. It's not the the worst. Um, uh, there are some really gnarly ones out there. Um, and I'll just say um, it's it's not fun. Like <laughs> I've never heard anyone say like, oh, like like one of the highlights of my life was like, or just like I had the most like, like, you know, sleep away camp uh, and um, getting to meet uh, one of my celebrity, like uh, people that I've always loved and then staying at the psych ward. Those are the most fun times of my life. Uh, you're not going there to have fun, but you're going there to save your life. And that's what, like, I know for a, a fact on two, two of those occasions, I would have hurt myself. Because this is after I had attempted suicide by taking, uh, by trying to overdose on pills that I had saved up. And my advice is, um, if you're able to have friends or family members that support you, um, bring books because, or if you're able to even bring books ahead of time, because there's not a lot to do in there. And so you are stuck with your thoughts. They, they do their best to structure out a day, but you don't have your phone. And especially in this day and age, like at the time I was tweeting all the time. And so it was this really big shift in how like my day-to-day -day was where it's like, you have no access to the internet, but I would draw um i would uh do a lot of reading and then like i think like if you're gonna be there like you're there no matter what and like at a certain point like there are circumstances where you don't get to leave until they say you do and so throw yourself into the activities like and like so i did that i would show up and like i think the second and third time is when i was like you know what i'll go to like group today and i'll be honest and like with everything in life, the more brutally honest you are with yourself, the more you will succeed. It's, it's the toughest thing to do, but the dividends that you get, it's like, it, it, it's tenfold. What you, what you put in versus what you get out is insane. And um, it's, yeah, it's not gonna be fun, but it'll save your life. And like, like I said, like the biggest takeaway I want from this is like, I, after going there and, you know, like it's, it can be a scary place. I saw some stuff that was very, very intense, but I still chose to go back a third time because I knew it would prevent me from hurting myself. And so like, and I get, but then like, I also have an extremely supportive family that would call me that I could call. And I had people that would come and visit me and like, that's incredible. Like the people like that also showed me some of who my real friends were who like came and visited me in a psych ward. There's still stigma attached with that. And people like, like you don't have soda, you don't have chocolate, but outsiders are allowed to bring you that stuff. And like, I'll never forget the, the friends who showed up and called and answered my calls. Like those are forever friends and my family just like, I can't, say enough about them for how how much love they showed me during that time you know being in there in you know depression suicide how do you distinguish for yourself the difference between being depressed and the suicidal thoughts how does that feel different to you or how are the thoughts different to you depression to me is is just malaise uh, feeling unmotivated, 
um, like gen just genuinely like versus like suicidal ideation is there is a voice in my head that gets the volume gets cranked up all the way and it's just the same like one line on a record on repeat over and over again or like you're worthless you're stupid you'll never get better than this you don't deserve to live and it's just that on a constant loop versus depression is just a lot more um it's just it's it's in a way it can be scarier because it creeps up on me um or it, in the past it would creep up on me where i didn't really see it coming versus like suicidal ideation it's like when you see like the storm clouds coming, like I know what's coming, like when it starts to come on. And so, so, so much of my life now is like preventative measures. Like we talked about at the beginning where it's like having a routine, like reaching out to a higher power, making sure that I'm eating right, that I'm doing my best to exercise, that I uh, take my meds every day, that I do therapy. And then um, that I'm active in my recovery. And by doing all of that and, and showing up for myself, that's preventative care that has taken away, like, like I said at the beginning, like I've, I've had three days, which of like where I had thoughts of suicide, where I was like, oh, like I am like really heavy, like really heavy. But at the same time, that to me is a miracle because from 15 to 35, that was every day of my life. One of the things I love, because I, I read a few of your other articles on Medium, is that when you talked about your addiction, and I would assume you're doing the same thing with your suicidal thoughts, the, the most important thing, it, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that you stop pretending that you didn't have an addiction. You stop pretending that you didn't have suicidal thoughts, and as a result, you started reaching out to people and, and, and voicing what you were experiencing of like, I'm really craving, you know, this drug, or I'm really struggling with these suicidal thoughts is, can you tell me more about that? And, and am I interpreting that correctly? You're definitely interpreting that correctly. Like that's the name of the game is don't wait for stuff to build up and bottle up and hide your feelings and try and, and, and put on this game face or put on airs for friends and family or for anyone where it's just like, here's what I'm going through. Like my best friend, Patrick, I call him once a week and we just talk for an hour and just like, that's its own form of therapy. And um, for recovery, I'm at a point now where I, I don't get cravings very often, which is one of the greatest blessings in my life, but I still do get them. And it's like pot is the monkey that will forever be on my back, um, especially with the way that it's changed in our society and become less destigmatized. And I'm pro legalization. Like I just like, I can't do it. Um, but the other thing is like, it, it's, it, it all comes back to me for uh, like, like, and this is really corny, but whatever, like the idea when, when I saw eight mile and Eminem and like the idea of we, when, if, when you're going into a rap battle or whatever, and before anyone can, can put their diss out, I put it all out and I embrace my flaws 
that was when I wrote about my suicide attempt, that changed my life forever. That was the best, that was the scariest and the best decision that I have ever made in my life. Because I did like that, that was like, there's no coming back from that when you publish like, hey, I tried to kill myself. Here's why. But also I'm like, there's so much vulnerability and so much possibility for blowback. Like our future employer is going to read this and be like, yeah, like we can't hire this person. Um, But again, but I found by being open about it and talking about it, like I'm really happy with the way I talk about it, which is pretty nonchalant because it is what, again, so much of it, it just, it is what it is. This is who I am and what I, my, my DNA is made out of. And like for all, I, I wouldn't be having this conversation with you if I had made every decision that I did. So like when I, like something I bring up to like friends or people who like are, are like going through rough times is like, it this too shall pass. This will, like whatever is the worst thing in my life right now, like that I'm fixated on, that I'm worried about a month from now, I won't even remember that. And so just looking at a big picture when I'm able to zoom out, like I'm able to see that every mistake I made, like that, I eventually I was able to learn from it and connect all the dots. And like, that's why I'm here right now having this conversation with you, which hopefully will help if it, and I know people say this all the time and like, ironically, like if it helps just one person, that that's, that's, that's a miracle. Like, that's what I'm on this earth to do. Like if I'm able to help somebody have a conversation with a family member, a friend, seek therapy or just not feel ashamed and say, you know what, I've had suicidal thoughts and just, and take the stigma away because that's the thing. It's like you live in this, or at least I'll speak for myself. I lived in this bubble where I said, if people find out about this, I'm going to be weak. I'm going to be laughed at. I'm going to X, Y, Z. And the complete opposite happened. It was a floodgate of love, empathy, and understanding people saying, Hey man, I went through that too. I relate to that. And it was this, this conversation starter and this jump off point. And just for me, like, again, like writing that when I hit publish, it was the most freeing moment of my life because that I, I had just gotten out of the psych ward for the second time. And I saw a friend on the street and they were like, I was so active on Twitter. They were like, are you okay? Like, I haven't seen you in a while. And I was like, I was trying to make up a story to like, just to lie my way out of it. And instead I broke down crying and I told them the truth. And they were like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know you were going through this. And like, I love you and let me know if there's anything I can do. And I went home and that is, I've had a couple of occasions where the words just came out of my fingers. I did. I wasn't even looking at the keyboard. Like it was just, it was, it felt like I was uh, a vessel for something greater than me, for, for for it to come out the way it did and have the reverberations that it has. And um, that's that's the thing. It's like uh, again, like I I will out checkmate you by coming to the game and saying, like again, like there's a time and a place for it. <laughs> like you don't just show up to a party and be like, hey everyone, I tried to kill myself. What's up? Um, but not ever being ashamed of that, these facts. 
I can stand proud and I am proud. And the fact that I don't have to hide any aspect of who I am, there's not a lot of people who can say that. Or the, I'll just speak for myself. I don't know a, a, a outside of recovery and like people that I've met, met through uh, talking about and having these conversations. I feel like uh, so many people just want to put on the game face because that's what they think society demands of them. What three books would you take with you into a psych ward? Well, <laughs> this is this. Um, I would definitely just bring like some David Sedaris books, just like some light reading. Like I'm really right now where I'm at in my life. I love reading about conspiracy theories. That is not what you want to be doing. They won't let you out probably uh, for for uh, a good minute if you're being like, let me tell you what about JFK and what really happened. And uh, um, oh yeah, like uh, that's a whole entire rabbit hole. Just stuff that keeps it light. And and I love reading biographies, and so finding like just just stuff that's that's light and and hopeful. And like, I don't have any examples right now, but like, like the, the thing that can't instantly came to mind is like, oh, like running with scissors, I think is, is David Sedaris. Um, and like, just, but at the same time, like maybe a book about like history, like, because it's very dense and it'll keep your mind occupied. And so it'll, it'll take your mind away from where you're currently at. So just like, light stuff but also maybe some like history that's not like the like the 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 history of depression and suicidal ideation don't you can take a pass on that one is there any part of your journey that i haven't asked about that you think would be valuable to anybody struggling with um you know i i get emails from people who are losing their house they're in debt they're they're going through a marriage and breakup and they, you know, they have some type of health scary. I mean, like, it's like they, they're just getting it from all four corners. Is yeah. there anything, and is there any part of your story that we haven't discussed that you think would be valuable to them? I'll just, I think I'll say a couple points, which is I can only speak for myself um, because I do understand like my own extenuating circumstances are totally different from someone else's. And what I find to be the heaviest burden can be can pale in comparison when, when you look at what other people are going through. That being said, I do think that the, the evil, depressive, negative voice inside my head, I think anybody who's going through this has the same thing which is a voice inside your head that sounds exactly like your own, but is not you that is telling you, this is the end of the world. This is it. I will never come back from this. I'll say a couple things. I had to declare bankruptcy when I first moved to New York. I paid off $24,000 uh, in bankruptcy. I didn't pay my taxes uh, because I was at a party and I was high and somebody was like, when I first moved to New York, this is after I declared bankruptcy. They're like, oh, did you know that the government won't come after you if you uh, don't pay your taxes? And I was like, oh, that's rad. And then I ended up getting my bank account frozen 
when I was like 29, 30, I had to pay back $18,000 in debt again to the federal government. Not just, so I did that with private banks and I was like, well, let's give this a go with the, with the, the real people who can like freeze my bank account and have like real consequences. And um, at the time I thought I would never get out of debt. I thought I would, I, I was just trapped. Um, I didn't date very much. I, because I was just afraid to put myself out there. And like, I didn't have sex till I was 21. I thought there was something wrong with me. Um, I just had no self-confidence. And um, at various points in my life, like when I, had, when I actually attempted suicide, I was working at a company writing listicles, like Buzzfeed, BuzzFeed style, like listicles was what they were after. And I was like, this is not what I want to do with my life. This is uh, like, I'm, I'm adding to the poison of the culture that I already hate. And I was like, I'll never find a better job than this. And every, I'm pounding my desk here. I don't know if you can hear it. Every single thing that I just listed out, I was dead wrong about. I am completely paid up. I paid my taxes the last three years. The first day that I could file my taxes, I was like, what's up, TurboTax? Boom, boom, bada bing. Got my refund. It actually came to me, which for eight years, the federal government, I would look at how much money was coming and it went straight to Uncle Sam. And my name is Sam. So it's like, what about Brother Sam? Like, it was just, and now I, I pay my debts on time. I have my credit card down to, I have like over 750 in the credit score. What? What? That is living the dream for this dude. And like, again, like I'm, I'm turning 40 tomorrow. I'm trying to move out like, and get my own apartment in New York. Like I have five roommates and like, again, like that's, I could look at that and be like, I'm a failure. I'm 40 and I still have five roommates. And it's like, nah, dude, that's, this is you. I've laid the foundation over the past year and a half where I'm in a position at my day job where I'm going to get a promotion. I am manifesting it by how I show up every day for work. And I also just have a belief and trust in something greater than me that I am being taken care of at all times, as long as I continue to be honest, be a good person to the best of my ability. And the biggest last point I will make is that I will make mistakes along the way. I will constantly screw up. And that is not only okay, accepting that especially in recovery will get you to where you want to be faster because i went to meetings for a year straight and i still relapsed so by accepting the imperfection of life and just coming to terms that I'm, no one does this perfectly and by by saying i'm going to you're setting yourself up for failure so um that's, as you can see, I don't really have strong feelings about any of that stuff, but. Uh. <laughs> I appreciate you sharing. And then last question, Sam uh, asks is, first of all, where can people find you? Plug all your things. I'm in bed size. So if you're in the neighborhood, just come by, say hi. Um, I'm, uh, of course, that's uh, another attempt at a joke. Um, I'm on twitter.com slash my name, which is S-A-M-G-R-I-T-T-N-E-R. Um, also on Instagram, I have a website, sambritner.com, that links out to my most popular tweets. It hasn't been updated in a minute, 
Uh, but after this, I think I'm going to, because I'm definitely going to link out to this show where it drops. This has been really a really great conversation. So I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm on all social media platforms except for TikTok. Like I'm just I'm aged out of that. Um, and like um, uh, I, I would love it if anybody uh, is curious. I'm pretty sure you'll you'll link out to the essays that are here. But I have a lot of stuff on Medium that I'm really really proud of. There's a lot of stuff about mental health, uh, recovery, uh, relapsing, and getting back on the horse. And you know, as as somebody who attempted suicide. Uh, outright and um and then just through drugs and alcohol and 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 relapsed so many times and as i'm just doing my best for today there is hope for anybody that is the the, the message i want to leave here with if there's if i can if i'm here today there's hope for anybody i love that um and last question because i always imagine that there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them, Sam Gritner? Whatever I would ask, whatever the, or I, I would share my experience and like, that's, that's hard to do in a sentence, but I have been there. I have been there. I tried. I tried. I thought that I had worn, like weighed enough stuff out that I would not wake up. And then to think that you're going to die and then wake up from that is the most, one of the most surreal things that can happen to someone. And I do believe that there is a reason that I'm here today. And that's to share this message is that I wasn't meant to die in order for me to share the message that you aren't either, that you intrinsically have value. And you, my DMs are open. My, you can hit me up on my Gmail account. I will always do my best to reach out if you're going through it. Like, I'm not here to be your best friend or your therapist, but I, I can reach out and I will respond. You are valid. And that is something that just our society doesn't tell people enough. You are you have intrinsic value because you exist. That's that's it. And I, I'll hug you. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help, for you calling the one eight hundred S U I C I C I D E or one eight hundred two seven three talks or any of the other phone numbers that are listed. They're international phone numbers. Remember, if you're in Mexico, Guadalajara, if you're in South America, <laughs> North America, if you're in Europe, Africa, Asia, no matter where you are in the world, there are phone numbers for you, and there are resources to help you pay for you if you need to stay at a psych ward or pay for therapists or find a sliding scale therapist. There are resources in each and every single one of the show notes, but you have to make the first step. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Sam. Thank you so much, Leo. I appreciate it. Have a wonderful day.